Hello, and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 74 movies, one cage. This is episode 28, The Rock, from 1996. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Joey Lewandowski, and with us, we have a return guest. I think our first return guest, Mr. Christian Larson, was also our first guest. So welcome back to Cage Club. Hello, it's a pleasure to be back with you guys. I'm very much looking forward to discussing The Rock with you. So this is a very different movie than Birdie, the last one we talked about. Oh, yeah, they couldn't be more different. (laughs) This is actually quite a change of pace just from the last movie, Leaving Las Vegas. So I have a couple little quick cage facts for you guys. I was looking into the budgets of movies. This, without a doubt, is the biggest budget so far in his career, and it also feels like it's the biggest budget movie. It's one of those quintessential 90s blockbusters where it's, it's obscene like the money and the destruction it's almost like they're they're just flaunting it i couldn't find the budget info for about 10 of his movies but the other 17 or so up to this point had been made for about 250 million dollars between the rock con air and face off these next 3 movies will be made for 225 million dollars so this is sort of like this week of cage club is almost as expensive in terms of the production value as everything that's come up to this point. And I think that, starting with The Rock, it really, really shows. It almost symbolizes Cage's tectonic shift in the industry. You know, those every movie up until now cost as much as the next three movies put together. Like, that that is uh, quite a status change. Nick Cage, he's going into another phase of his career. He's now... A-list action star. Celebrities go through these different phases like no one would have thought Liam Neeson would be an action star, but it just happened that way. And Cage is set to be this unlikely, because before this, he'd done comedies, he'd done character work. He was never a two-dimensional action star. He came close in Firebirds a little bit. I think the most action is him twice beating someone to death with his bare hands. Yeah, but that's, that's a different kind of action. But no, I get your point. <laughs> Brief spurts of action. The Rock cost $70 million to make. Did you know that The Cotton Club cost $58 million? It wow. does not show. That's $1984. Like, that's crazy. Well, that's um, also because so Coppola's crazy, and he probably yeah. insisted on, you know, building an entire block of, you know, 1930s New York City. If you take out The Cotton Club and the and Kiss of Death, then all the movies up to this point only cost $150 million. So, I mean, this is very clearly, like, mainstream popcorn entertainment. We're going to spend a lot of money because we're going to make a lot of money. And if I remember right, I think it made something like $330 million worldwide. So it definitely paid off. You nailed it when you said worldwide, right? Like, this will open up the world to Nick Cage, pretty much. You know, most of his films, he's been pretty domestic. Um, but, you know, The Rock is one of those worldwide big action blockbusters. It'll play everywhere. And from now on, you know, everyone will recognize him. It's interesting you bring that up because right around this time was the first time I remember thinking about the worldwide film market. It's when these blockbusters were coming out, there were all these headlines about how well they were doing in Asia and Europe and how much money they were making out there. That was never really in the public conscious, like what happened to a movie after it left here. So this movie is about... How do you really describe this movie? Cage is a biochemist (laughs) for the FBI. I was going to say it's about two hours and ten minutes of pure kick-ass 
action yeah. <laughs> adrenaline. Yeah. But, uh, you know, when the when the story opens, this movie is about a disgruntled marine, pretty much. It's a retired marine, yeah. He's a retired disgruntled marine played by Ed Harris, you know, and he's kind of having like this crisis of conscience and going through some sort of flashback where mission gone wrong and yeah and then it kind of starts with this heist it's like i'm thinking this is like you know a military heist film we're getting into you know maybe some crimson tide territory i don't know what's gonna happen i have to give this movie credit in these first two scenes they establish so much without having to you're used to in these movies having exposition just spoon fed to you in these few scenes the first with ed harris has the retired general or whatever looking all sad and giving his little monologue about honor and whatever and then the next scene where they go to this naval weapons depot which is a great a great name for a place where something like this goes (laughs) down they just take these guys out like fellow soldiers they're just murdering them in those few scenes you see why they're doing what they're doing their justification for all this which for this is ridiculous it's thin what i like though is you're given just sort of enough to piece together your own conclusion like you don't know their entire motive but you know that this guy is an american soldier you know retired he has a grudge against you know the government for the way that he and fellow soldiers are being treated so you get like this okay he's got like a vendetta but it's sort of like he's on the right you don't know that he's a complete villain yet so you're kind of intrigued and definitely drawn in here when they're doing this this heist. They're just taking out this weapons depot. You also get to see how brutal they are and how ruthless they are. Like, right off the bat, you're like, these guys do not give a shit. I think that's important to bring up because this is like a very, very strong R-rated action movie. Yeah. And it's the kind of movie that, like, really couldn't be made today, right? Or if they made it today, I think there'd be a lot of pressure from the studio to make it PG-13. And you have to cut out a, like a lot of the violence, you know, almost all the swearing. It's a sort of a a relic of a bygone era, right? Oh, in a lot of ways. I mean, there there are things. I made a list of things that come up that you just wouldn't see in a movie, an action movie made today. I mean, I think even something as simple as the, you know, ex- flagrant use of the F-word in this film, yeah. even that is lost from sort of the new R, right? That's almost, R is almost reserved for sort of like nudity or blood sh- bloodshed, right? Like basically you could kill and shoot whoever you want, but if you show the red, you get the R. And this movie doesn't yeah. have a lot of, of blood per se. I mean, Ed Harris in the end, we'll get to it, but he was a very significant character in needed like a very weighty death but for the most part i feel like the r is for the language there are some pretty badass deaths in this movie which i'm sure we'll get to well the first one here at the chemical weapons depot we find out they're stealing vx gas is that what it's not sarin gas it's like vx gas the guy fumbles some of it and we get like this amazing gory horror scene where his face is melted off it sets up you know the stakes of what these guys are doing you know they're still this is the weapon this is what it's capable of it'll come around you know in the climax that's another thing that's established really well in those in those first scenes is that now you see like just how intense this stuff is it's establishing those stakes it's establishing 
that these guys are completely ruthless, and it's kind of giving you a little bit of a justification for what they're doing. It seems like it's about time to introduce Cage, right? I mean, we haven't gotten the Cage in the podcast, they haven't gotten the Cage in the movie, but after Ed Harris and his team of former disgruntled military personnel steal the BX gas and get on their way, we cut to Cage, who's sort of like an office, like a desk agent for the FBI, right? Sort of like a behind-the-scenes... Yeah, he's a he's a scientist. But he's also a federal agent, so I was just thinking of guarding Tess, where he's just constantly assigned to the most boring detail. But luckily, I mean, we get a lot more of Cage in the field in this movie than we did in, in guarding Tess. Yeah. Instead of just 20 minutes at the end, we pretty much get like a solid hour and a half here of Cage doing FBI stuff in the field. They do yeah. a great job of sort of setting up how mundane his life is too because there's these elaborate Rube Goldberg situations yeah. set up. I, I thought I always think of you, Joey, in Superman 3. <laughs> there's a Rube Goldberg situation on screen. I love it. I mean, that's the first thing he does. Like he has like a, basically a Nerf gun, right? And he shoots at this Rube Goldberg machine and he's got good aim with this gun that does not mean anything for the real world. But it's, like, his only sort of field experience. He's just the kind of guy who, like, the excitement in his life is that he gets a little package in the mail, and it's a Beatles vinyl record. He's a Beatlemaniac, so of course this is a big deal for him. You guys have too much time on your hands. Yes. She's here. Bring it to me now. Thank you, Phil. What's that? Where'd you get it sent here? Carla weren't approved. She thinks it's dumb to spend $600 on an LP. Carla's right. Why don't you just spend $13 on the CD, man? First of all, it's because I'm a Beatlemaniac. And second, these sound better. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. In movies like this, the characters are just all completely two-dimensional. Sadly, there's not a lot to talk about regarding Cage in this movie just because his character is so two-dimensional. He's lucky that he has more than two personality traits that they've assigned to him. He's smart. He's good at his job. They threw in the record collector thing to kind of give it some color. I kind of think this is pretty funny because it's pre-eBay, you know, and he's tracked down like a first printing of the first copy of the Beatles' first record, I'm assuming, you know? Looking at it now, he feels more like a Beatle maniac than he did when I first watched this because I was like, wow, he tracked that down before eBay, man. Like, he must have used some government connections or something. But we all know that he's not really a Beatle maniac. He loves Elvis Presley. So I don't think the scene really rings true. Hey, it's a movie. Like, we, we, we can believe anything. Yeah, it takes an actor as good as Cage to sell the fact that he prefers the Beatles over Elvis. Like, <laughs> bravo. Then they get um, another package in the mail, right? <laughs> yeah, they get another package in the mail. And he's, got, he's, like, partnered up with probably... I mean, it's like an action movie, so, like, not everybody is the smartest person. Although I do like that it does seem like Connery, Cage, and Ed Harris, they're all, like, smart. Like, they're all, like, you know, competent and know what they're doing. But this guy that he's teamed up with is like this just classic action movie buffoon, right? That they get a package and they're going in to make sure there's no harmful gases in there. And there's like a baby doll in there and this guy doesn't think anything of it. He just picks it up and just like starts to play with it. Oh, God. And, and presumably he does the same job as Cage in this. He's a scientist specializing in toxic gas. He's also played by a guy that pops up as a bumbling 90s sidekick in a lot of 90s action movies. I know him from Jerry Maguire, right? He's the the male nanny, I think, for Renee Zellweger. 
if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> this is just 80s, 90s action, you know, necessity. Like, even though Nick Cage isn't the main star, like, he even gets a bumbling sidekick, you know? Like, the bumbling sidekick has a bumbling sidekick. He needs to be, like, in order to sort of set up how cool Cage is under pressure, you kind of need someone incompetent, you know, near him. But you're right, he's just not qualified to be... Like, I almost thought, like, he should have been a guy who accidentally got trapped in that room with Nick Cage, you know, or something. Like, he was the mailroom clerk, and, and he's like, I need help, get in here! <laughs> <laughs> this scene also gives us sort of the, the Chekhov's gun of the movie, right? The needle that you need to inject into your heart to save you from, the, from the VX gas. And, like, all movie long... Because they bring up the needles a couple different times, right? And you're like, somebody's got to inject themselves in the heart with this thing. <laughs> There's no reason they're calling this much attention to it. And later in the movie, we finally do get that. But we it's one of those great, like, this is, like, it's not like a huge action thing, but, like, it's a crazy movie moment that, like, we're so close to getting a few times, and then we finally do get it, and it's so satisfying at the end. Also, yeah. one one last thing before we move on from, from this scene. One of the technicians, because I was thinking 90 sidekicks, I'm, like, seeing Cage bumble around with this guy, 90 sidekicks, and they cut to one of the technicians outside the room who are, like, freaking out and and one of them is weird al's sidekick from uhf he's the guy who's like well they're fucked right he's like yeah yeah he's like sitting behind a console and he's like they're fucked these are fbi agents i love michael bay's sort of black humor coming through already in this movie you know like he's the kind of guy who's like well a bunch of cops get distracted by room service a bunch of fbi lab agents are incompetent like (laughs) i wonder if michael bay has some kind of thing against the fbi because they are portrayed as the biggest bunch of bumbling idiots i think it's just bureaucracy in general you know like he just gets a laugh at making them a farce quickly about this big needle thing too because like i saw that and i was like yeah that just like horrifies me i'd rather get melted to death than stick a big needle in my (laughs) chest i I just also kept thinking like you know pulp fiction just came out and it had a giant needle scene so i'm not sure but i would wager someone was like oh like there's an antidote for this let's make it a huge needle it just played like really well in pulp fiction so not only is cage like a biochemist but he's also great at defusing bombs like he's sort of a dual threat right he goes in there to defuse the bomb and he gets it just under the wire and so he then takes off the rest of the day because he's been a little rattled and he wants to go home and so he's just sitting there shirtless noodling around on his guitar and his girlfriend walks in. He's got an amazing apartment and a hot girlfriend. Like, Cage is living it up. And he's listening he, to that record, too. Who plays a $600 record? You put that on the wall, like, behind a frame. <laughs> I was surprised that they got the rights to use a, a, a Beatles song in this movie. Hey, with $70 million, you can get the rights to play a lot of different songs. I guess, but the Beatles are notoriously stingy about letting their music. Anyway, Maybe it was uh, Michael Jackson might have owned that at the time. <laughs> so his girlfriend walks in. And they have this, like, really great exchange about Cage says it would be so irresponsible to ever bring somebody into this world because there's people just killing refugees and sending bombs in the mail. And she's like, hey, I'm pregnant. Stan? Hey, darling. Hi, baby. Hi, baby. I had such an interesting day today. Yeah, I had kind of an interesting day myself. Okay, you go first. Oh, just some terrorists decided to send a little care package, box of goodies, which had to be neutralized before blowing up the office. So I took the rest of the day off. Glass of wine, little guitar, just relaxing. 
I mean it, honey. The world is being FedExed to hell on a handcart. I really believe that anyone's even thinking about having a child in this world is coldly considering an act of cruelty. I know. I'm rambling. I'm complaining. I'm sorry. What's your news, baby? I'm pregnant. I'm sorry? This is just more really great setup. Like, it's we're still, you know, 12 minutes here. We're still setting stuff up. We haven't met Sean Connery yet. We haven't even gotten to The Rock yet. This is just nice little quick sort of home life. We get to see him at home. He's all he's he's comfortable, naked, playing a guitar, you know? We see him in his natural habitat where he's most relaxed. This whole thing with the wife, like, I like how she proposes to him. This whole thing of her and the baby, it's just, you know, he's got something to lose now, you know? We find out that he's just not some single schlub working a desk job. He's actually got something he's going to need to defend and fight for. This scene serves two 90s action movie purposes. One is to give some color and some personality to Cage's character. He lives in a cool apartment. He has this girlfriend, blah, blah, blah. And it also gives us stakes for him. Shit's going to go down later on. And he has someone he cares about, and that person is pregnant, and that person will probably be put in a, a dangerous situation. So they're giving us two 90s action movie staples at once. Now that we've like really sort of set the stakes for Cage, really the sort of the star of this movie, we then see Ed Harris's plan continue and sort of get into, move into phase two, right? He goes with his guys to Alcatraz, to The Rock, yeah. on the, the tour of the, the prison, it's pretty clear that there's going to be trouble on this tour, like, right away. Yeah, well, they have the comically inept tour guide. They actually, they take a, a moment to show that one of his socks is pulled up and one of them isn't. <laughs> I just kept thinking of, so I married an axe murderer and how well yes. and did the same thing, you know, and if they I, only, if they only I had have, Mike Myers in one of those cells. At one point. Uh, I have Phil Hartman written down right here because that's all I was thinking about. It's like, I'm sorry, but the only Alcatraz tour guide for me is Phil Hartman. Like, if I ever go to San Francisco and get a tour of Alcatraz and it's not Phil Hartman, I'm going to be really mad. <laughs> I got some bad news for you, pal. <laughs> yeah. But I love how, like, taking control of Alcatraz is, like, nothing to the... Like, they take over the rock faster than Magneto in X-Men 3, you know? Like, they are, <laughs> like, they infiltrate a tour group, tell the kids to get back on the school bus or the ferry or whatever, and then they just, like, wait until everybody locks themselves into the cell, and they just pretty much walk up and like tell the guy like hey we're taking over they're marine recon which which i wrote down is is their technical name for their group they've probably been overthrowing uh, uh third world governments since the 70s he calls the president he calls like you know that panic room or whatever in the white yeah. house he sort of drops that line like you know by the time you were nine years old i was already leading raids and doing black ops in like other countries he makes a real point that like they've been doing this a long time that they've been really good at this yeah ed harris is like <laughs> over-decorated for, like, what he's accomplished, you know? Like, this guy is, is Rambo. That's the whole motivation for them, is that, like, they've had to... They've been disavowed by their government, and they've done all this stuff for the government and gotten no recognition for it. 
Yeah, it's uh, very so. sort of Skyfall, right? <laughs> like M sort of disavows that one agent and he comes back to seek revenge. One thing about this scene when the Marine recon is taking over Alcatraz, people often accuse Michael Bay of fetishizing the military. This takeover of Alcatraz is total military porno. It's like <laughs> helicopters and soldiers and shouting and like you got the rockets and they're throwing yeah. around words like traitorous and treason and you know and Ed Harris walks into like one room and he's like I want my command center right here yeah. and they literally like start bolting a command center into the room floors and stuff. <laughs> That is just, like, fantasy of, like, what someone thinks military is probably like. And I, I'm just picturing a young Michael Bay in his bedroom with, like, model airplanes and tanks being... <laughs> Command center! And we also get another sort of great, like, little military moment is that Ed Harris has this speech, right, about, like, how just their cause is and why what they're doing is, like, the right thing. You know, all throughout history, there have been, like, these traitors. We have achieved our position through poise, precision, and audacity. To this, we must now add resolve. We'll be branded as traitors, gravest capital crime, punishable by death. A couple hundred years ago, a few guys named Washington, Jefferson, and Adams were branded as traitors by the British. And now they're called patriots. In time, so shall we. It's this, like, uplifting motivational speech. These are, like, terrible guys who have already... We've already seen them kill, like, dozens of people. <laughs> but, like, you're sort of like, oh, right, like, maybe they are actually in the right here. Well, that was yeah. the thing. I was like, the American patriots, you know, Washington and those dudes, you know, those dudes, I'm pretty sure they were up against, like, a king and, like, tyranny and oppression. You know, it was much different stakes, I feel, back then than these guys. Like, I don't know. I feel like hiding behind the founding fathers is sort of a give to show just, like, he might be off his rocker a little more than we can tell. And like we said from the beginning, the justification for this is very thin. It's basically like Michael Bay needed to have a bunch of badass soldiers on Alcatraz. So he cooked this up and we have to buy into it. And you know what? I'll buy into it for this movie. And so I guess the important thing or the thing that, you know, the U.S. government needs to, to figure out is how they're going to like tackle or how they're going to go up against this badass group of military guys is, you know, the biochemist front that has never seen the field. And uh, this 30-year wrongly imprisoned man who's got a grudge against the government, it's the perfect team, like, ragtag group of misfits that are going to take down, like, the most highly trained people in military history. In the FBI's defense, they are sending them out with, like, FBI commando-type dudes who will die five minutes after arriving in Alcatraz. This is where uh, Ed Harris calls the FBI directly, right? And he's like, I want to talk to Director Womack. And we get introduced to Womack, who, like, everybody in this film has a beef with this guy. Like, from Foresight to Connery to Ed Harris, like, no one likes Womack. He calls, like, a special meeting, and they're like, oh, this guy is, like, from Desert Storm. He was in the Vietnam and the Tet Offensive. He's been in, like, Grenada and, like the Bahamas. I don't know. They kept mentioning everywhere this guy. <laughs> Fighting black ops. And, and that's when he like he does his Dr. Evil thing. And he's like, I want $100 million. I couldn't believe it. I had totally forgotten. 
But he's like a hundred million dollars. They lost eighty-three men. No burials. No benefits. No medals. No recognition. None of that stuff. So he's going to give each family a, a million dollars. It's not like a selfish hundred million dollars. It's not like Doctor Evil, you know, wanting all the money for himself. Like he's got places to give the money, but it's still like a ridiculous, crazy. Especially, you know, given the U.S.'s history of not dealing with terrorists, which which they go to the president later, like, you know how he feels about terrorists. But, like, it's not going to happen. Like, I'm not sure what they think their endgame really is here. Every time you think too hard about something, you're out of it already. Like, sure. Basically, this movie was Michael Bay wanted crazy action movies set on Alcatraz. Everything else was secondary. The characters, the plot, everything. Like, he had some awesome action scenes in his head, and he was like, how am I going to make this happen? And I'm totally, like, in it. I'm with it, I'm fine with it, and I love, like, 99% of it, you know? But there's just one or two things that stick. Like, the only problem I kind of have with Ed Harris's beef is, like, you know, he's like, my men didn't get burials or benefits. It's like, we see Ed Harris go to his wife's grave, and she's buried at Arlington Cemetery. We're not sure if she was a soldier (laughs) or just his wife. But he's got to be so pissed that they buried his wife there and not, like, these any of these 83 guys there. And, like, they don't even recognize him. Like, that's just, like, that is, like, bad form government. You know? I mean, Michael Bay goes out of his way to show government corruption, not only in all these, like, covert ops, but they talk about the Red Sea Trading Company, which is basically where the U.S. government keeps all its dirty money. They're like, we don't have that much money to give you. Ned Harris is like, uh, yeah, right, you don't. You have the Red Sea Trading Company. Get it out of there. He knows, like, too much about the military and what they actually have at their disposal for them to really sort of pull one over on him. And that sort of goes back to what I was saying before. Like, I like that he's, like, this incredibly competent, for the most part, like, well-defined villain, right? He's not just, like, a guy who has, like, vague ambition. Like, he's sort of, it's like, what he wants to do is a little bit weird and unconventional, and maybe this isn't the best way to go about doing it. But at least he has a plan and knowledge and training and experience. And, like, he's, like, for all intents and purposes, like, a really formidable threat. The way I saw it was, like, you know, he forced himself into this whole situation without, like, a exit strategy i mean i don't think he ever really wants to fire any of those rockets you know he seems very conflicted but you're right like he is of the mindset of this is the only way to do like he's from that military background so he's going to use that thinking and those resources to hold a city hostage one other thing about this whole uh situation room it brings up another great 90s action movie phrase Thermite plasma. And the only thing that can destroy the VX gas is thermite plasma. Right, and that's their first thing. They're right, like, let's just bomb the shit out of Alcatraz and, like, you know, yeah, sure, 83 guys, you know, whatever, no benefits, but, like, yeah, let's have 81 more hostages die. So they cut to... Oh, God. Oh, here we go. Well, they cut to Cage, right? Is this this what you're thinking about or no? Yeah, they cut to the weirdest, most off-putting sex scene in a movie. Well, no, we've seen we've seen some pretty weird, off-putting sex scenes in Cage Club <laughs> so far. This is pretty tame and normal by comparison. No, no, no. I mean, I'm not talking like Zondali. I'm talking about like <laughs> this, this is a mainstream action movie. People brought their kids to this, even if it was rated R. All of a sudden, they go from like the Situation Room in Washington D.C. to Nicolas Cage having sex with his hot girlfriend on a rooftop to rocket man oh is that what's playing 
Yeah, they're, the Rocket Man is playing in the background, which is a uh, great, great little foreshadowing. He's saying, I made a list of the creepy things that Nick Cage says during All right, this. let's hear him. I remember even when I was younger watching this being like, this is kind of weird. And I'm someone who would have been really excited that there was a sex scene happening, but this <laughs> just made me feel gross. Nicolas Cage says, this is very compelling, which is a great line to throw in when you're having sex. Talk uh, he says she has a peach sorbet persuasion. I mean, what Cage is- loves peaches, right? Peach what, is like- associated with sex for Nick Cage. By far. Sex yeah. and the vagina, yeah. But persuasion? Complexion, maybe. I, I don't know. And then there's the whole thing about the pigtails, and she's like, do you like my pigtails? And he's like, oh, they're very naughty. It's like, I don't want to hear this. This scene is like walking in on your parents having sex. Like, it made me feel that awkward. But, of course, that's when he gets the phone call that he needs to come down to the office. And, like, what's kind of crazy, in a sense, is, like, this is really the last time that they ever really interact. Like, they have a couple phone calls later in the movie, but, like... This is their only, like, their last real interaction in the movie, and we're left on this, like, really awkward taste in our mouth. This may be one of the quickest compromises Cage makes uh, on film, and by compromise, that's have sex on camera ever since watching Boy in Blue, because that took place in the 1800s, and they couldn't say to each other... You just had sex with me. She had to say, you have compromised me. I love that that is now a cage club thing. (laughs) Every once in a while, I like to remind people why we (laughs) say that. I remember that compromise under the boardwalk in Birdie. Oh, boy. Oh, oof. And that was before we knew what compromising was. And then I'd just like to say that Peach Sorbet Persuasion is my band's new name, so we will be going by that from now on, <laughs> my imaginary band. So yeah, so like Larson was saying, like he heads down to like prepare for this mission. He walks into this huge hangar with this plane, and he's like, oh, neat plane. Like like the first field action at all he's ever seen. Like He's, just, like, he's so impressed by just the sight of a plane. Neat, uh, yeah. neat, neat plane. Dr. Goodspeed. James Womack. It's a pleasure to meet you, sir. Thank you. You come very highly recommended. B.A. Columbia, M.A., Ph.D. Johns Hopkins, biochemistry toxicology. Well, I'm one of those fortunate people who like my job, sir. Got my first chemistry set when I was seven, blew my eyebrows off. We never saw the cat again. Been into it ever since. (laughs) What do you know about VX gas? Liquid. Failed pesticide discovered by mistake in 1952. Uh, Actually, it's kind of like champagne that way. The Franciscan monks thought they were making white wine. Somehow the bottle carbonated, but voila, champagne, and then the whole gas. Dr. Gibbs, It's very, very horrible, sir. It's one of those things we wish we could disinvent. This isn't a train exercise, is it? No, Dr. Goodspeed, it's not a training exercise. But then he explains sort of like what his background is in, and it really gives the movie, like, we know how sort of serious Ed Harris's plan is, and I know that the people that are recruiting Cage know how serious it is, but it's the way that he describes what he does and why he's being brought in that really sort of hammers home the severity of this situation. It also establishes one of Danley Goodspeed's three character traits that he's really good at his job. He knows his shit. Yeah, and he likes his job. And it's yeah. cool that he can be this bumbly, laugh at this guy. You know, he's the comic relief. It's cool that he can also switch to be extremely serious on the drop of a dime because he can. He starts to read the room and realize this isn't a choking situation. And I think that really helps cue the audience just how deadly like things are going to get. In a movie like this, he's given two modes. 
Cage's two modes are incredibly competent viral expert scientists and bumbling awkward nerd. Both sort of socially awkward, right? They are sort of complementary, not not in the kind sense, but complementary as in they go with one another sort of character traits, but he does sort of go back and forth between the two, and it makes up the Stanley Goodspeed that we know and love. Yeah, and speaking of two different dimensional characters, we're about to meet someone who is both a ruthless, badass uh, soldier of fortune and a uh, sensitive philosopher. They realize that the only way they're going to get into Alcatraz is with the help of someone who broke out of there, and that is John Mason, long-haired, bearded uh, man who's been kept in chains in the basement of the basement of a prison because he can break out of anywhere, and they take him into a interrogation room. Sean Connery, John Mason, has like a history with these FBI agents, or at least with one, with Womack, right? And so they send somebody else in to question him, to sort of get him to come on board for this mission, and the guy does not do a very good job. They say, all right, Cage, you're going to go in there. He's like, I'm not qualified for this. But he goes in there, he's sort of that, like that bumbling, like Larson was talking about, just this bumbling, like, nice guy who just has no real-world experience, and it creates this, like, amazingly comic scene, him against what you sort of are led to suspect is, like, one of the most dangerous criminals in U.S. history, right? Even though he's not necessarily. John Mason, Sean Connery is this, you know, well-thought-of, very intimidating, imprisoned-for-30-years man, and they send in Nick Cage with no real-world experience to, to convince him to go on this mission. Hi. I'm an agent with the uh, federal FBI. Uh, well, my, I'm Stanley Goodspeed. But of course you are. At least he got his name right. Of course I am. And you have an emergency. That's right. And you need my help. Exactly right. Coffee. No, no, I'm fine, thank you. Offer me coffee. Oh, yes. Well, that was, in fact, going to be my next... Can we get a cup of coffee in here, please? I'll uh, take these off. Mr. Mason, really. Absolutely. That's a gesture of your good faith. Prisoner requests to have his handcuffs taken off. Why don't you go ahead and have his handcuffs taken off, please? Well, I guess that's one way to go. They don't give Cage a lot to work with in this movie, but in this scene, it, I, I love how Cage goes back and forth between what he assumes an FBI agent is supposed to act like in this situation, like he's acting tough, then eventually he just nerds out with him. You get to see the beginnings of how they bond, because they're both nerds. It's the most range we get to see from Cage. But it's kind of him nerding out that, like, tips off Sean Connery that he's not this anti-terrorist guy, right? That no, no anti-terrorist oh, yeah. guy is going to get all these, like, literary references that he's dropping. Yeah. Like, does it buy Cage credibility, or does it sort of give Connery the power, or both? I think both. I think they bond a little bit, but at the same time, Connery 
sees that he can mess with this guy. I like this scene a lot because it's going to set up their dynamic for the rest of the film, which is Sean Connery has like some respect for this guy's intelligence, but no respect for like his abilities or his job or anything like that. They establish almost a vaudevillian Laurel and Hardy-esque relationship with this scene, you know, and they sort of bring, they play off each other like a comic duo very much throughout the rest of the film. Connery is both impressed with Cage and sort of bewildered that the FBI are this desperate, I think. And and he's playing along for the most part because he's breathing fresh air and all that kind of, he's not locked away in a dungeon for 30 years. So I think he's just sort of entertained and like interested in this um, Goodspeed character. He eventually convinces Cage to sign off on this plan where he gets put in a luxury hotel and gets a haircut. And this is another example of the FBI being total fucking idiots. He's getting his hair cut and he distracts the FBI agents by ordering room service. And all the FBI agents are like, oh, free food. Blah, blah, blah. Let's ignore the biggest criminal of all time. His one demand is to go to this hotel and sorry, I mean, we'll get into it more because it's amazing, but his whole reason is so he can sort of escape the FBI and and visit his daughter. Why didn't he just demand a visit with his daughter? I can't go forward without getting that off my chest. It's obvious that he asked for a specific room in a specific hotel for specific reasons. And the FBI is not picking up on that. Maybe we should keep an extra close eye on him because he specifically ordered this room for a certain reason. These are the kind of guys that get distracted by a free buffet. So the gay stylist shows up. Another very, very hallmark moment of the 90s, right? Yeah, yeah. The 90s were the last time when you could have these cheap, stereotypical characters. You wouldn't see that nowadays, but back then it was like a wisecracking black sidekick in every movie. But yeah, it's definitely a sign of the times. Mason asked for this room specifically because he has like an escape plan right. devised where he, <laughs> I don't know, what, maybe like 30 years ago he hit a piece of rope in the shower or <laughs> he just knew that this <laughs> specific room has this type of shower. I don't think he hid that rope. I'm guessing no, it's something maybe... Soap on a rope. I always remembered hearing soap on a rope as like a joke punchline or whatever, and I never actually have encountered soap on a rope in real life. It must have been a thing back in the day, and it was probably a thing at this luxury hotel. He grabs the soap on the rope rope. He goes in for like a gesture of good faith, like, you know, we're going to play along, we're going to do everything, we're going to be on the same team, we want to shake on it. And Womack's like, yeah, and again, like, like Mike was saying, like, not picking up on any of the signs. Like, why does this guy want to shake my hand? (laughs) He, like, wraps this rope around Womack's wrist and throws him off the roof. And so he's just dangling, you know, from the penthouse suite of this, like, really tall hotel. Cage pulls a gun on him. And this is when the room service shows up and Cage is yelling for help. But there's, like, nobody coming because they're all eating. And Cage (laughs) has the gun on Connery. And then Connery takes the rope and ties it around a chair. He's like, all right, you hoist him up. And then he just takes off through the kitchen and leaves all these FBI agents to like rescue Womack and then try to catch Connery after he's had this little head start. This goes into one of these epic 90s blockbuster action pieces. It's when Mason is escaping from the hotel. Stanley Goodspeed is chasing him. Mason gets into a Humvee. 
Well, before that, he's like going down like through escalators through the kitchen with like no concept of how escalators work. There's like a staircase, and then there's the escalator going up, and he's running down the escalator going up. I don't know why. It's sort of funny to see this guy who's like so composed making his life, making his escape more difficult than it needs to be. You get kind of a glimpse of his old manness coming through too, because Goodspeed catches like right up to him. You know, like he makes good on his name. He's got good speed. Uh, he's a <laughs> quick guy like you know he makes it down into the kitchen and they're racing out of the kitchen together and like he's right on his tail this whole time which i thought was was really cool it's just like nipping at his heels michael bay just decided that there had to be a, a car chase through san francisco in his movie mason gets in a humvee which is a 90s thing calling it a humvee like, this was back when only Arnold Schwarzenegger drove a Humvee. So, <laughs> yeah. So he gets in a Humvee, and Stanley Goodspeed shows up, and he gets in a, a Ferrari, I, I think. Yep. It's important to note that it's a yellow sports car and not a red sports car. Yeah, yeah. Cage Club continuity. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why it wasn't a red sports car. I guess the <laughs> yellow... I mean, the yellow does sort of... It is visually striking in the scene, but, like, we all know that if Cage had his say, that it would have been a red sports car. Obviously, Michael Bay doesn't listen to the Cage Club podcast, (laughs) because if he had, it would have been red. But it's just this epic car chase. There's so much damage done to the streets of San Francisco. There are those classic San Francisco jumps where, like, the car goes over the hill and, like, gets airborne and slams down. They demolish a trolley that blasts up into the air. I remember that from the trailer. This is uh, just, like, bullet eat your heart out. Up until this point, like, people are always like, oh, bullet, if you're ever going to look at that, is the world's greatest car chase on screen because they shot in San Francisco and it's so hard to race around those streets and everything. And it's like, these guys just trumped it by, like, a thousand, you know? It's so Michael Bay. It's so, like, over-the-top, gratuitous explosions and, and, and damage everywhere. Now, hear me out quickly on this. We got the Humvee which is sort of representing the 90s and then the future of vehicles. And then we have the Ferrari, which is sort of, you know, an action film trope of the 80s, where the hero always sort of drove this awesome sports car. And this almost feels like the past chasing the future in a way. And it's even funnier because we have the old guy driving the newer car and the new guy driving the older car. I like that. One other point about this chase scene. Nicolas Cage wrecks the Ferrari halfway through and gets on a dirt bike. Regardless of that, both of them are conducting very complicated cell phone calls. <laughs> in the middle of this ridiculously dangerous car chase, Connery is trying to track down his daughter, and he has to do all kinds of finagling to do that. On the phone, as he's driving around making fucking trolleys explode, Cage is talking to his scientist sidekick right no cage is trying to find out if if connery lived in san francisco or if there's like any kind of connection like why he wanted to be here right yeah yeah they're both doing the same thing they're both trying to find out where to go it's ridiculous (laughs) that they're able to conduct these conversations while doing what they're doing the best part for me is that sean connery has been behind bars for 30 years yet he (laughs) is like totally comfortable with a car phone and then all 
all that stuff. I mean, he's driving yeah. on the right side of the road, even though he's from England. And, like, I mean, he is a special agent, but I don't know. Just he's got no problem just slipping right back into, you know, the outside world here. Time to turn the brain no, dial. I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining. <laughs> no, no, I absolutely understand. They both end up in this, uh, I think it's called the Presidio. It's a San Francisco landmark. Mason arrives first, and he meets with Claire Fiorani, who's playing his daughter. She's a 90s staple in a lot of high-profile films in the 90s and then just kind of disappeared. But this whole thing has been so that he can have a conversation with his daughter. He escaped from the FBI just so he could talk to his daughter and then Stanley and the FBI show up like five minutes later and take him back into custody. He did all that just to make his presence known to his daughter. That's my issue, right? Like, it's not an unreasonable request. I mean, I would think it's even more reasonable than I want a hotel room in the middle of the city is I just want to talk to my daughter who I haven't seen, you know? I'm sure the FBI would be much more willing to just do that and think you were even a nicer person if that's all yeah. you really wanted so that's why this i just wish he needed to get somewhere to get something that he'd use later on the rock that he couldn't tell these guys about and again i think it was just michael bay insisting on this chase and they were he he said to his screenwriters like justify this they're both successful in their phone calls right because connery finds out where to meet up with his daughter in the park and Cage gets to her house just as she's leaving. They run into each other in this park after Connery has his little moment with his daughter. They hear the sirens coming, and the daughter's like, oh, that's for you. And then Cage says, hey, we've been looking for you. Like, you're wor- you're working with us, right? Like, he sort of bails them out that he's he, like, does this nice thing. He doesn't yeah. have to do this nice thing. Because I think this also goes back to earlier that Cage is now going to be a father. He knows how important it is to have your family love you and have your family support you. Mm-hmm. He could say, yeah, this guy just broke out of prison or, you know... <laughs> Or we let him out and he escaped our hotel, but he's working with us. Like he's he's actually on the right side of the law for once. And that kind of is a moment when you see that they have a connection, which will carry over to the rest of the film. Keep in uh, mind that we are nowhere near the rock yet. <laughs> <laughs> True. This is at least forty-five minutes into the film. Yeah, they don't set foot on the rock for at least a good hour. The team doesn't get to the rock for an hour. They bring everybody back into the fold. They're talking about how dangerous it's going to be to go into the rock because there's all these different things. They convince Connery to go because... He convinces them. He's like... Oh, he uh, convinces them. Yeah, this is a kind of interesting scene. Sean Connery wants to go, but it's not allowed to. And then Goodspeed doesn't want to go, but he has to go. We have to get, like, everybody on the same page during this sequence. That's kind of interesting. Like, Goodspeed gives his summary of the situation to the powers that be, the brass. He's like, oh, these are the rockets. This is what it can do. I'm more than willing to help out. Let me know when you need me. And they're like, we're sending you to the rock. <laughs> well, we know the poison's being kept in the prison more in the satellite thermal imaging, which is right here, these colorized dots. Have you ever actually seen one of these devices? No, sir, but I've studied them. I should really begin briefing your guys on diffusing and detoxification. We've got a really neat layout over here of the camera as well as the rocket, so let's get rolling. That won't be necessary. Oh, it's very necessary, sir. The power of this chemical is way beyond anything you can imagine. An ecological disaster, sir. Plus, the devices themselves are complicated. That's why you're coming with us. I am. You're the expert. 
What's your problem? You mean I'm going, going out there, under the water? Well, earlier today you wanted a gun. Now you're getting a gun and a wetsuit. Have you ever been in a combat situation? Fine combat, sir. Shot? An incursion underwater to retake an impregnable fortress held by an elite team of U.S. Marines in possession of 81 hostages and 15 guided rockets armed with VX poisoned gas. In that case, no, sir. Sean Connery's like, I don't have blueprints. It's all in my head. (laughs) You've got to send me along. God, I don't. I don't know if I love that or hate that impression. I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't. I'm sorry. They just happen. You know, I know he doesn't, but I was going to say I hope that Cage collaborates with Connery in the future, so we get to hear more of Mike Manzi's Connery. <laughs> well, rumor has it Sean Connery actively sought out to work with Nicolas Cage, and Cage uh, had signed on to this, so Connery signed on, and they sort of tailored the part for him. They just have a great on-screen chemistry. They're together, they're alone for a lot of this movie, and like, you, you get a lot of great stuff, but it makes me wish like there was an entire movie or like a franchise where sort of like Lethal Weapon, you know what I mean? Like this young guy who's like up and coming and this old guy who's like a little bit past his prime. Oh like, my I would love to see like multiple movies with so the two we, of them. We could talk oh about God. potential sequels towards the end of the <laughs> podcast, but there were ideas floating around. They convince Cage that he has to go. Sean Connery talks his way onto the team. And just like before Ed Harris had his speech to his guys... Like, we get a little bit of a motivational speech here, sort of like that 90s gearing up. Like, yeah. this is like, we're, we're doing an important yeah. thing. Like, this is, we're preparing for something that's big that's going to happen. All right, listen up. Mr. Mason will run point for us. Lieutenant Shepard will be attached to his hip. You breathe, he breathes with you. You piss, he helps. Understood? Good speed is our specialist. When he neutralizes the threat, we launch green flares and we wait for the cavalry. Make no mistake, gentlemen, we are in the fight of our lives against maybe the greatest battalion commander in the Vietnam War. I shit you not. Any questions? Well, Michael Bay movies are big on speeches. One thing that I was thinking about when the car chase was happening is that a signature Michael Bay move is the circular camera around the hero. Mm -hmm. The camera that rotates around the hero as he's either giving a speech or, like, having an intense moment. And that happens with Connery during the car chase, and it happens several other times during the movie. Like, Ed Harris gets one. Pretty much every main character gets one of these intense circular camera moments. Oh, another thing that I noticed, another little Michael Bay, and I think it's just because I'm, like, obsessed with bad boys... But you know, like in Bad Boys 2, when they're undercover at that KKK rally, and then like they throw the thing off, and then they pull the guns out, and like they, they do that like cross arm pulling pistols from both holsters out, like to double to dual wield. He does that shot in the beginning of the movie at that you know naval weapons supply depot. Yeah. That the guy does that thing where he walks up to the cage. He's like, "Oh man, it's raining out there." It's like it's the slow mo like badass action star pull two guns out to shoot two guys. You can make fun of Michael Bay all you want for making these like crazy over the top movies, but like the guy knows how to film action and knows yeah. how to like make people look awesome. Yeah, yeah, he really does. And you think about like certain directors have certain shots that define them. You know, Spielberg has the infamous Spielberg zoom. Martin Scorsese has the one take where they go into the Copacabana. And Michael Bay has the camera slowly rotating around 
around the hero while they do something awesome. Well, what's great for uh, for Nicolas Cage's rotating shot, it happens when he gets out of a car. Like, he, he crashes the Ferrari, he gets out, uh, and that's, gets, like, yeah. his hero shot. So yeah, it's that's, almost that's, like a joke, in a sense, that we're going to waste this amazing shot for a guy just <laughs> getting out of a car. I really like... Michael Bean here, you know, he's like Hollywood's resident Navy SEAL. It's cool to see him commanding a squad of guys not on another planet. Like he, yeah, Michael, Michael Bean back from Deadfall. That's right. Yeah. Deadfall. And let's just say, I just got to, you know, if you want to know the difference between a good director and a bad or if you just want to see the difference between someone directing a scene and someone letting a scene just happen watch Bean and Cage in Deadfall and then watch Bean and Cage in this movie and it's just like an eye opener for sure man but uh, I mean everyone is just solid like I, we haven't said anything about William Forsythe yet uh, mostly because he plays like a thankless character he's like bureaucrat number two but he's sort of the guy who uh gives nick cage the pep talk right he's like look man like you're the only one who could do this or some some shit like that but i just like how everybody is played by a presence you know everybody when they're on camera you think that they're gonna live throughout the whole movie and yeah, this is like a star-studded like powerhouse cast yeah yeah i mean they're two-dimensional characters but the people who are playing them are knocking it out of the park. My favorite of Ed Harris's Marines, or they're one-dimensional, they're even zero-dimensional, <laughs> but, but he's well, got you know, John McGinley and Candyman. David, and David like, Morse. He's got some yeah. guys on his team, you know? What I sort of do like about this scene, like we were just talking about how we're like an hour into this movie, right, and we're not even at The Rock yet. Now that we have Cage and Connery on board... Like, they're recruited, and, like, really two minutes later, we're at The Rock. Like, there's not a lot of, like, prep time. Like, we get to this point, and then all of a sudden, we're there. It's sort of, you know, the big act two. Like, yeah. we're, we're sort of in it. Yeah, and if you yeah. weren't thinking James Bond with Sean Connery before, <laughs> I was definitely thinking it now, because they jump out of helicopters and infiltrate The Rock on these, like, underwater scooter things. It's, like, right out of Thunderball or something, and I was like, oh, that's badass. Like, I'm loving it. <laughs> There's a quote I wrote down, we have to be ready for the fight of our lives. And Ooh. I felt like that was such a dramatic Michael Bay typical <laughs> line. There's a great line where the guy's like, all right, mini cams on. And I'm like, oh, mini cams. I was like, you mean GoPros? Oh my god! Oh my god, Mike, 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 I have to tell you, I'm looking at my notes right now, and in my notes it says mini cams equals GoPro. Like, that's exactly what I was thinking. Wow, GoPros, they got GoPros. I love, like, the Cage hasn't been, like, we were were talking about this earlier, like, Cage hasn't really been, like, an action star, but we see him, like, snorkeling under, like, he's just, like, he's just an action star in this scene. Like, this is him, like, this is what we've been waiting for, like, we knew this week was coming, and, like, this is Cage, like, the start of, like, the next hour and 20 minutes, where it's just, like, him and Sean Connery being, like, action heroes. I also have in my notes, mini-subs equals awesome. I just think that Cage is just, like, super adaptable as a presence and as an actor. It's just, like, you could throw... And maybe he just brought that to his character. Like, you just throw good speed into any situation. As long as it's, like, a high-pressure situation, he will handle it some way or another. He will kind of find the way. You know, his lack of field experience is almost a blessing. It's like he's revealed to be the greatest 
FBI field agent, you know, he is the guy that lives basically and all of the Navy SEALs are dead, all the Marines are dead. It, it's him who's like lighting the green smoke and saving the day and everything. The next sort of like James Bondy moment, right, that we get is Sean Connery rolling through like flames and like oh, gears. Gosh. Oh my God. So amazing. <laughs> First of all, ridiculous like the fact that there's a furnace like the first obstacle they come to is a furnace that you have to time the way you roll through it to avoid flames and razor sharp gears that is such a deus ex machina (laughs) almost literally this is his chance to do the end of indiana jones and the last crusade where he was shot well Indiana Jones had to do the tuck and roll. Yeah. Now he's doing the roll job. And I wrote down Goonies for Grown Ups. This is sort of like their entrance into the underground cavern and all that jazz. And I'm not even going to touch why this furnace is lit and operative in the first place. <laughs> no, there's, there's no reason for it to be operating right now. <laughs> but I love that it's just this elaborate puzzle to like get through the furnace and unlock the door. And it's just like craziness. It establishes Connery's intimate knowledge of Alcatraz. And yeah, it's not his, on the blueprints, that's for sure. Yeah, and his badassness. This is a very real example of, like, he can't explain, like, okay, you're going to be in this room where it looks like you can't go anywhere. Like, you're going to be a locked door and that's it. But there's going to be a crawl space that's basically like an oven with open flames. And you have to get down there and roll, and, like, roll, like, <laughs> two and a half feet, and then wait, like, four seconds, and then roll another two and a half feet and wait eight seconds, and then roll again. Michael Bean's well, like, I yeah, I got it. Everyone got it? All right, cool. Next. I don't know what's crazier, like, trying to, like, think that, like, he could explain that, or the fact that it hasn't changed in 30 years, or the fact that he still remembers it. Like, it's all crazy, but it's all wonderfully perfect. Or the fact, like Mike said, that this furnace is still working. (laughs) But when he, he disappears into the furnace, they all assume that he either died or betrayed them and left. But then he shuts down the furnace, he opens the door, and he says... Welcome to the Rock. Titular line. That's like the line in the movie. Like that's all I could think about. Like for the last like week when I knew we were going to watch this movie, that I could just I just heard Sean Connery in my head over and over again saying that. <laughs> Ed Harris and his men have set up a command post in like one section of the prison, yeah. and they've set up like alerts, like sort of like security alarms. Like if they sense movement or sound in other places in the prison they'll be alerted that things are going wrong yeah. if they need to go check something out. They knew that the one spot where they were most vulnerable was a vent in the shower room. So that's Which is where... exactly where they go up. Yeah. Before that, I, I just want to make a reference to a rape joke. Oh, uh, boy. <laughs> yes. Again, a sign of the times. After the whole furnace thing, Connery and Cage have another bonding conversation. Connery talks about how this is a lot more exciting than being in jail and he's like oh the most exciting thing about being in jail is avoiding rape yeah gang rape Uh, in the shower and he's like but you know it's less of a problem these days i guess i'm losing my sex appeal like wow that is another example of something that would never be included in a mainstream action film they have the gang rape talk out of their systems so they go (laughs) to the place where the gang rape would actually happen right they go to the, the showers there's a motion 
motion sensor specifically set up for them in that room. Cage and Connery and the crew show up and they notice the motion sensor and they come up with some sort of countermeasure to it. Yeah, they notice it with like a fiber optic cable. It's like a camera on a wire. They try to disarm this motion sensor, but they just end up triggering it. It's sort of like disheartening because they took such care, right? Like they, they saw it, they knew how to do it, they were going to put up a mirror and reflect the laser and then slowly move this back. But like the technology is like so advanced, I guess, that even like their very delicate movements or motions or whatever set off the alarm and alert Ed Harris and his men that like there's something very much amiss in the bathroom. I, I sort of took it as they thought they dismantled the device so they weren't aware that they had tripped the wire uh, that's the way i felt it read yeah. me, because when they emerged from the sewers which by the way getting michael bean in those sewers i had more aliens flashbacks than like i could count on my fingers yeah they so they get out of the sewer into the commode and realize they've been surrounded and there's like the biggest shootout in any cage club movie so far pretty much like everybody dies yeah, it's uh, a bullet ballet. It's all it is. It's just like all of the Navy SEALs are shot to death. The soldiers who come in, they have this this confrontation with Ed Harris, and Ed Harris is talking about, again, the justification. The leader of the insurgent group is agreeing with Ed Harris. He's like, we know what you're going through. We know all these soldiers have been lost the injustice, whatever. We're just doing our jobs. Then something happens that sets off. One of the Marines knocks loose part of the wall, and it falls down, and one of the Navy SEALs thinks it was a shot. So he shoots, and then everybody starts shooting, and then before you could say ceasefire, mostly everybody's dead. Again, this is one of those moments that you don't see in modern action movies, because people are dying, like blood is squirting everywhere. Like, a scene like this happened in a movie today, all all the deaths would happen off camera but you see like the brutality of this scene they're gunning yeah, each other down what's really sad is that you get the sense michael bean may have been able to talk ed harris like out of this you know if they had just been captured instead of murdered you know they might have talked him out of it somehow but yeah it's just too bad and and also michael bean is almost the janet lee of this movie where <laughs> i kind of thought he was going to live a lot longer than he does he gets to the rock and he's killed right away only in cage club can you hear action movie side character described as i did it in kiss of death because uh <laughs> <laughs> helen hunt is the janet lee of kiss of death Apparently, she's like, yeah she's like the biggest star in that film and she's taken out in like 10 minutes maybe that's a cage connection the janet Ooh. lee there's uh-huh um, so the only reason that Cage and Connery don't die is because they're still, like, underground. Yeah, they everybody else goes up, and they're they told to wait down there. Yeah. They're down there with that other guy, and he's like, you guys stay here, I'm going to go up there. And then they see him, like, he gets shot, he gets hooked on something, and he is just, like, his dead body is dangling uh-huh. in front of them, and yeah. they're just like, oh, like, Connery, like, runs off, right? And then the the people in the control room back in Washington or wherever get Cage on the phone, 
and they're like, what happened? He's like, everybody's dead and Connery is gone. And they're like, you gotta go get him. Like, <laughs> the only way that we're ever gonna, like, save this situation is if you go get him. Like, go find him. Yeah, this is some weird stuff here where we go back to Washington and Foresight walks up to Womack and he's like, what's with this John Mason character? And we yeah, finally and that's- get his origin. I need to know who the fuck John Mason is right now, sir. All right, you want to know? 1962, J. Edgar Hoover is head of the FBI, some say the country. It's no secret he kept microphone files on prominent Americans and Europeans, De Gaulle, British members of parliament, even the prime minister. I mean, this guy had dirt on everybody in the world. Yeah, I know all the cloak and dagger stories. Where does Mason fit in? Mason was the British operative who stole the files, but our bureau agents caught him at the Canadian border. Of course, the British claimed they'd never heard of him. And we held him without trial until he gave up the microphone. But he never did. So you held this guy without trial his whole life? No wonder he's pissed. This man knows our most intimate secrets from the last half century. The alien landing at Roswell, the truth about the JFK assassination. Mason's angry. He's lethal. He's a train killer. And he is the only hope that we have got. This part, like, takes this movie from just being, like, this crazy action movie to almost being, like, a sci-fi film. He knows about the aliens in Roswell. He knows about the JFK assassination. He's a British intelligence guy, and he had it out for, like, Jay Hoover or something. So he stole all of Hoover's secret microfilms that included everything from Roswell to who shot JFK to God only knows what else. The microfiche, the, another very 90s word. Yeah. But, I mean, so what's the deal? Like, they caught him and they just locked him away and forgot about him until... But I don't know, like, what the, what the order of, like, operations would have been there because they, they caught him and they locked him away... But he was still able to hide in a very remote area that microfiche. Like, maybe they found out that he was doing it, and he was on the run, and then it hid it, and then was caught? It was in Kansas. Yeah. Yeah, I just wish his, when we found out, like, his crime, you know, like, his major reason for being locked up, I just wish it wasn't, like, so fishy. Like, it just seems like they locked him up because he was, like, a homeland security risk or some crap, and they forgot about him. I just wish it was, like, he actually committed treasonous crime or something. I don't know. Something to be more redeemable. Cage finally catches up to Connery. Connery had run off. Cage catches up to him. He pulls a gun on him. Oh yeah, he says, freeze, sucker. The big thing in here is that Connery's like, why should I keep helping you? Like, everything went to hell. Like, why are we here? I don't know all the answers. And Cage sort of fills him in, right? Like, he comes clean, like, yeah. I'm not really anti-terrorist. I'm actually this biochemist. Like, Connery knows what that means. Like, he knows that there's some pretty serious stuff afoot. You're right. I don't use guns, and I don't kick down doors. This is what I do. I've got my glasses. What it says is chemical weapons specialist. I got a lunatic up there, man, with 15 missiles armed with some really fucky stuff. Not my Womack. You could have told my daughter. It was classified. Look, I'm in the same situation. I got my girlfriend in the city with a baby on the way. Look, I can defuse the rockets. I really can. But I'm going to need your help. I'm going to need it right now. Connery didn't know why he was doing this. 
and now he does. Like, he has a purpose. This is the first time he's going to leave, but he's going to try and leave, like, a couple times. Like, when the going gets oh, tough, yeah. Connery's oh, yeah. out of there, you know? He's like, screw this. Because Connery knows that he's probably going to get screwed. And, like, one thing that we didn't mention earlier is that after Cage convinces Connery to come with them on this mission, he gives him to sign this thing that basically says, if you do this for us, we will let you go. Cage brings it and hands it to Womack, and Womack just rips it up. Connery doesn't have, like, a firm grasp or, like, proof that he's going to be screwed over but like he thinks he's going to get screwed over and if he why should he continue to help why should he continue to put his life on the line when he knows that if he's whether he's successful or whether he fails he's going to go back to the united states and then go get thrown right back in prison yeah plus i also feel like mason kind of they're in the tunnels and he's like why should i stay this and that that's when he gives him the do your best speech where he's like i'm gonna stay and do my best i'm sure you're ready for this i'll do my best your best Losers always whine about their best. Winners go home and fuck the prom queen. Carla was the prom queen. Yeah. That was Sean Connery sort of like putting a pin on his point saying like, I'm going to leave you with this sort of insult. Losers quit, but winners screw the prom queen. And then Goodspeed's like, my wife is the prom queen. You know, like I did, which, I did get to screw the prom queen, which is basically the second prom queen he's had in his career, right? Like Peggy oh, Sue yeah. is kind of prom queen. So I mean, <laughs> this is another another little case in action. We always talk about how he gets like you know the beautiful girl, yeah. but like he's had two prom queens, like he's had two of the best of the best. I just feel like yeah. that response was like so unexpected for the Sean Connery character to be like this nerd is banging the prom queen kind of thing that he's like all right like I'm impressed now to go and at least track down the first set of rockets you know like I'm gonna stick around this kid keeps surprising me like we might actually pull this off they're looking for the rockets and we get into like another sort of example of why this movie is rated R like this is some of like the most graphic violence one of the first kills is a knife shot I think Connery throws a knife and, and there's like a and gopro it, on the knife so we get yeah it, point it's, of view. it's like a robin hood prince of thieves kind of point of view thing this leads into a very awesome action scene there's a bunch of soldiers around the next rocket this movie's like a video game it's like disarm four rockets they're spread out over this map, right? <laughs> you gotta go. <laughs> exactly. From, you could get them in any order you want, but the troops are constantly moving around the map. <laughs> and one of the kills is the knife that gets thrown into the neck. Another one is I don't know if it's Cage or Connery who fires their gun under a desk and just rips the shit out of someone's feet. That's what I was thinking about. Like that's just like incredibly graphic. Oh. To put a fine point on it. Like, the guy is, like, writhing on the ground in pain, but, like, about to shoot them. And then Sean Connery shoots at an air conditioning yeah, unit. Yeah, the guy was going to like a grenade. And he shoots at the air conditioning unit, and it just falls in the guy's head and just flattens this guy's head. Like, it's crazy. So I feel like yeah, that and- is Michael Bay coming through again like that's his sense of humor you know what i'm saying like you don't just kill a guy like you drop an air conditioner on his head it's like i don't care if we're in alcatraz there's a great moment when cage looks at his twitching feet and he's like is that normal like is that what people do connery's like yeah he calls it the most awful thing he's ever seen he's just like i'm just a biochemist like i can't i can't handle this like this is this is sort of like above my pay grade you've been around a lot of corpses is that normal well, the feet thing? Yeah, the feet thing. Yeah, that happens. I'm having kind of a hard time concentrating. Can you do something about it? Like what? Kill him again? Listen, I'm just a biochemist. 
Most of the time, I work in a glass jar and lead a very uneventful life. I drive a Volvo, beige one. But what I'm dealing with here is one of the most deadly substances the Earth has ever known. So what do you say you cut me some friggin' slack? And then we get to see Paige, like, do his job, right? Like, he's defusing this bomb, and it's, like, showtime. And that's definitely a scene where it establishes that Cage is a badass when he's doing his job. Yeah, it's like Connery is way out of his depth with chemical weapons and warfare and rockets and all that. He's more of a hand-to-hand combat type of secret agent, you know? He's he's kind of playing old James Bond here, basically, which I'm fine (laughs) with. It's it's amazing, you know? I feel like he's he's really making up for a lot of, like, sitting in a car seat for Indiana Jones Part 3 again, you know? I just feel like this is his redemption for just being second fiddle to Junior. If you think about Connery, like, Connery's career, this was pretty much the last hurrah for Connery. I mean, he did the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, but this was his last chance to be an action movie badass, and it was a great way to end a career. And the whole thing with these bombs is they only need to remove the guidance systems chip from yeah talk about 90s you have okay we have a rocket with vx gas and explosives and all this but it's like the death star like if you remove one little chip or just like tap it in the wrong way the whole thing kind of becomes obsolete it's kind of like great that it's just this elaborate bomb and like you got to remove the poison to get to like this really simple way of diffusing it it's perfect the complexity of its simplicity is just like pure action film. So this is where, like you were saying before, we get that like little video game montage where they're basically just running from rocket to rocket, diffusing them, taking out the guidance chips, and sort of you know killing and like lighting guys on fire along the way. Right? Yeah, we're getting into the mine carts, the laundry cart scene, which is fucking incredible. Yeah, wait, it was there like a dwarf realm beneath Alcatraz originally? Because this is like some Lord of the Rings shit we're getting into in a minute with like even Indiana Jones like territory again with mine carts and all this crap. Yeah, they're laundry carts apparently. There's a system of laundry carts that ride on rails beneath Alcatraz. And that's where our heroes find themselves. John C. McGinley leads a expedition down to the minecart world to take them out, right? <laughs> yeah. And they're throwing grenades, and Cage is throwing grenades back and shooting guns. Like, under Alcatraz, John- like, a very delicate structure, <laughs> and they're under it, in the tunnels, like, blowing shit up, like, throwing grenades. Like, this whole island's gonna crumble at one point. Not only is the building subject to crumbling, but, like, there is all this NX2 or VX2, like, there's all this gas above that could kill everybody in this island if, you know, a a grenade explodes in the wrong place. They're not being careful. (laughs) Then Sean Connery, like, has, like, a little container of gasoline or lighter fluid or something, and, like, lights... Yeah, I, where did he get that from? It was the I, only thing he asked for on his mission was yeah. like four washers and a bladder of lighter fluid. I remember earlier in the film he asks for some very basic things, and they were all like, "Ha ha ha, these are ridiculous." All right, whatever, and he ends up using them. But he like lights John C. McGinley's, pours the lighter fluid on his feet, and uh, then lights him on fire. Yes, that, like it's crazy. That, crazy well we need Um, at least like one guy on fire at some point in this movie 
But, like, I think the big thing that happens here is that we get Cage's first kill, and we also have him curse for the first time, right? He's been this buttoned-up guy who just says, like, things like, freeze sucker, and isn't, like, he's not ready to pull the trigger. He knows that in this situation he has to. He says offensive things like peachy persuasion. He's he's weird, but he's not, like, like, he never curses. Like, everybody around him, like, they're all, like, these gruff military men with, like, you know, sailor's mouths, and he's, like, this buttoned-up, conservative kind of guy, and this is, like, where it sort of snaps, and, like, he reaches his breaking point and knows that he needs to kill, or otherwise he's gonna be killed. I just quickly love two things about this transformative moment. Like, the first thing is, we get the payoff from the very first shot at Cage in the film, where he's shooting a Nerf gun, and he hits the target, so we know he's a good shot, even though he's sitting behind a desk. So when he takes aim, we know he's gonna hit his mark, even though we don't see the bullets go into the bad guy, but we know he's he hit him, definitely. Yeah. The second thing I love is that, <laughs> you know, you put a guy who's like, for all intent and purpose, he's like a pretty normal you know regular dude into a high pressure situation like he is gonna change like he is gonna snap at some point like everyone reaches a breaking point and it's just really funny that the movie's making that sort of comment like he's never going to be the same after this at this point like i'm so engrossed in what's going on and it seems like sean connery and nicholas cage have the upper hand right like they've killed a bunch of guys in a row they're diffusing rockets everything's going well and then they up up in the up in the prison they go and grab a hostage, and you're like, oh, right, like, there's 80 hostages here. Yeah, the hostages, what about... Like, they just completely forget about them, but, like, there's 81 hostages that even if they kill everybody but Ed Harris, like, he still has leverage over them. And they've been in those cells, like, (laughs) three days straight, with, like, no one checking on them. We're an hour and a half in this movie, we haven't, like, heard about the hostages in probably, like, an hour and ten minutes, like, they're just there, like, it's part of the grand equation, but, like, they're not showing them. they seem very colorful, too, you know? Like, they seemed like we were going to be checking in, like, the passengers on the bus and speed or something that's another staple of 90s action movies are the hostages i actually had a note earlier where there was a sassy black hostage which is a relic of the 90s he's like get me the fuck out of here <laughs> they're having luck killing all of ed harris's men but there's the hostages and then they both get captured right connery sort of gives himself up so that Cage can go defuse the rest of the rockets. But as he's going to defuse the rest of the rockets, like, a guy with a machine gun gets the drop on him and brings him in, and, like, the two guys are like, it's a good thing that our boss wants you alive, otherwise I'd be, I'd be more than happy to gut you right now. Connery gives himself up, right, and they both go to the cell. They both get thrown into the, the Alcatraz cells, and Cage is saying, you know, I understand that once you were out, like, how you got out, like, you walked us through the reverse, like, I know how you, you got out of the prison, I know how you got through the little, the furnace, I know how you did this and how you did that, but he's like, how do you get out of the cell? Why didn't you just tell them where the microfilm was and create a solution? The moment they had the microfilm, they suicide me. Some solution. You ended up here. Which brings me to another question. You broke out. Let me see if I can get this straight. You went down the incinerator chute, on the mine cart, through the tunnels to the power plant, under the steam engine, that was really cold by the way, and into the cistern through the intake pipe, but <clears throat> how, in the name of Zeus's butthole, did you get out of your cell? I only ask because in our current situation, well, it could prove to be useful information. Maybe! Meanwhile, 
Sean Connery is like sort of old hat, like he has this memorized too, right? Like he's just tying up all the bed sheets, which I still don't know why there's bed sheets on the bed, but he's tying up all the bed sheets in like first try, or maybe the second try, but like really quickly. Yeah, unlatches the cell and gets them both out. Yeah, and it, it led me to beg the question: like, uh, if I was running this operation, would I put these two hostages like next to each other so that they could collaborate in escape attempts <laughs> at all? Like, Ed Harris is definitely you know slipping here, and he's not—he's got his head up his ass at this point. You you shoot and you kill Sean Connery, and then you use good speed as like leverage against the government. Cage isn't really helping in terms of the escape, right? He's just sort of there if anything, like, bothering Connery. So it's not like having them next to each other really does anything. Like, Connery still would have broken out and still would have found Cage and let him out. It's sure, just, but, I think it's just there for, for movie purposes. But at this point, Connery knows of the danger of the missiles. Yeah, and there's like knows- eight hours or something until the airstrikes, because, yeah, they, they're like, we're going to bring the fire down because this operation is FUBAR. And the reason they brought his daughter into it is that he would have a reason to not want San Francisco to be nuked. But then why does he walk away, like, three times? He's like, oh, my daughter, whatever, like... I mean, they don't bring her oh, up. Yeah. But he does, he's like, you know, the first time before he knew they were dealing with gas, and then, you know, a little bit later, he's going to pretty much say, like, uh, oh, I tried, or whatever. But, yeah, I could see your point there, but they never make it, you know, they make it about as clear and important as Goodspeed's unborn baby. At this point, the government has discovered thermite plasma, or, or they've developed thermite plasma. I'm saying, man, like, this movie's reality is like a Jack Reacher film, you know? Like, it's like <laughs> Last Action Hero. Like, there's, I'm sure aliens have visited, or, you know, at least New York has survived some kind of ecological disaster <laughs> of some magnitude. Like, other shit's going down in this film universe that I want to know about. <laughs> They're getting ready to just nuke the island with thermite plasma. And, and again, you see Michael Bay's military fetishization there's like a big american flag and jets take off and like they're ready to nuke the island so they go back to the island and like once again sean connery kind of quits on cage right and it's like cage is gonna have to do this himself sean connery is sort of done with the mission once again that he's sort of lost all hope and he's just gonna have to like he, he got cage out but like he's done like it's gonna be all on cage now yeah. yeah and even ed harris is starting to lose control over his troops you know and his troops are like you know we're doing this for money and he's like well that makes you mercenaries and he's like i guess it does there's a black guy i hate that i'm referring to him as the black candy guy man? was it candy man from the candy man horror films he's the one who's like into it till the end he's like a badass black dude and he will come up later he is convinced that like if it takes nuking san francisco it takes nuking san francisco he emerges as ed harris's antagonist there's the conflict in both places right like connery and cage sort of split up and like there's candy man or whatever you want to call him <laughs> um, let's we'll call him candy man because that's it's less racist it's maybe not correct but it's less racist he's fighting with ed harris and there's sort of like dissension in the ranks cage is still running around trying to defuse the rockets once again a guy sneaks up on him and tells him to get down on his knees cage is like really he's, he's got no gun here or at least he doesn't have the drop on the guy and his only defense is to basically explain 
the severity of the situation. My name's Stanley Goodspeed. I'm a chemical weapons specialist for the FBI. Uh, glass or plastic? What? Glass or plastic? Glass or plastic? Shut the fuck up! Because if the winds change, after you launch those rockets, we're all gonna die! Shut up! And you're gonna end up in either a glass jar or a plastic bag! So what do you say you do the math? Hand over the gun, and let's go find some rockets! Again, like, you think that, like, this is the end of the road for Cage, but, like, again, for another time in the movie, Sean Connery comes up and saves Cage once again. And then we cut back to the other conflict, the the Candyman and Ed Harris, and this is when they launch the rocket toward Candlestick Park, where the Niners are playing, so I guess we're on, like, a Sunday afternoon or something. <laughs> Ed Harris, like, launches the rocket and then, like, detours it at the last second. And everybody's just like, why? Like, the white, like, you know, Washington goes into red alert. Like, they just sent a rocket. Like, they could kill all these people. And then they're relieved when the rocket goes into the water because it drastically changes course. But, like, Candyman and all the other people in the room are just like, what are you doing? Like, that was all we had. Like, yeah, why would you not kill like, them? Like, I thought that was the whole point of everything. Yeah, they're like, it's going to look like we aren't going to go through with it. You know, they're like, people are going to look at that and say, like, these are just idle threats that we don't have the guts to do what we say. And Ned Harris is like, no, it'll show us as, like, compassionate or something. Like, everyone's trying, like, he's always trying to twist it. And they're like, no, like, we're really into this and you're not anymore. And, like, it's too bad. Yeah. We're take- Basically, like, we're taking over. Like, it's a mutiny. This is the beginning of the end for ed harris's character like it was a bluff the whole time and they called he, the he even says he's like he's like we bluffed they called it missions over like we played all our cards like we put all our chips in like we don't have a hand like they yeah. called it like we're done like there's nothing we can do and they're like we're not going to accept that like we're in it for the money and they they mutiny right and yeah. they they take yeah. over and they're trying to they're trying to like take over power and then like there's another huge shootout but it's all guys basically on the same side i mean that's the difference between ed harris and Candyman. Tony it's Todd. That... <laughs> I have to look it up. It's Tony Todd Candyman. It is. <laughs> That's the difference. Like, Ed Harris was in it for ideological purposes, and he never meant to murder millions of people. But Tony Todd is willing to murder millions of people. This isn't a bluff. Like, I just feel like it's too big a hand. You know what I'm saying? I think the rest of his guys from the beginning would never have waived. They knew the stakes. It's one of those situations where, like, the leader wasn't even aware of the stakes or how high they were of his own plan. It's sort of because of the bluff that the president and Washington is like, we need to do something now. It's just amazing, like, any time that they cast someone to play the president of the United States in a movie. (laughs) so wonderful just to see the president portrait because sometimes they go with like the real one sometimes they make up the fake one and i just love how like i was saying like this guy just makes me want to explore this world even further i want spin-offs where this guy is the president in this universe like he goes this is the worst call i ever have to make and he literally picks up a telephone call and says airstrike approved these past few hours been the longest darkest of my life how does one weigh human life one million civilians against 81 hostages and in the middle frank hummel that we have ignored abandoned or marginalized a great soldier like frank hummel and that american boys have paid for that neglect and blood is equally real and equally tragic. We are at war with terror. Fighting the war means casualties. 
This is the worst call I've ever had to make. Airstrike approved. This is another like '90s Michael Bay, Bruckheimer kind of thing. Is the president giving a big speech or somebody giving a big speech, being like, "We don't want to." He's like do- a Lyndon Johnson esque kind of guy, <laughs> no? Like he's not like a cool president or. Well, he's kind of like, like a frumpy, right, overweight it's not Bill president. Clinton, who like they would have been sort of spoofing at the time or anything yeah. like awesome, yeah. you know? Like he was literally the Fonzie of presidents. One of my favorite scenes, like out of any '90s action movies, not a lot goes on. It's sort of just this very like stuck in there, but they took the time to be like the fucking president is in here. Like it's that drastic. We're gonna nuke the rock you know like this is happening and so we cut back to the rock ed harris's men are like in this like mexican standoff in this shootout ed harris gets shot and cage and connery go in and sort of drag him out and all their men are sort of shooting at each other they happen to be there they happen to be like right outside the room well they're just sort of like like it's if we're if we're going back to it being a video game they're just sort of exploring all the area right and they're trying to figure out where that last rocket is sure. i guess they just so happen to be right outside the shootout sure and they drag ed harris out and the last thing he does before he dies is he tells them that the last rocket's in Lower Lighthouse. And so Cage goes down there. Once again, he's sort of, like, he's, he's diffusing it, and the guy shows up. It, it seems like, you know, by this point in the movie, he would know to sort of have some kind of sense on, like, like where the doors are, you know what I mean? Like, to be aware of people coming in. But I guess when you're dangling this, like, string of pearly, gooey, green, explosy, gassy balls... Uh, you, can't, you can't like focus oh on that. Oh my god! Else. All right, uh, all right. That Joey, is my, that I correction. That's yeah. my band name. Joey, I'm going to capture that the way you said that and make it into a remix. I have to say, when Ed Harris is dying, he says a phrase: "May God have mercy on our souls." Uh, I mean, the only other words that were appropriate to come out of his mouth at the time is "What have I done?" Yeah, you know, it's like one or the other. Like that's you know, he's, he's "May God have mercy on our souls." It's his Vader right. moment, right? He gets redemption there right at the end. Yeah. He comes back to the bright side, yeah. but he has to die. And Cage goes to get the last rocket and he's diffusing it and the guy comes in and this is the best death in the movie Uh, and uh. sort of the ultimate cage great line in the movie i think we got started off on the wrong foot stand good speed fbi uh let's talk music do you like the elton john song rocket man i don't like soft ass shit oh you know well i only bring it up because uh it's you you're the rocket man what I liked about that death is it's like a double death. Like, he gets the rocket to the chest, which shoots him out the window, which probably would have killed him anyway, but he gets, he lands and gets impaled, like, on a fence. Also, Not expecting that. It's great. It's so good. It's and funny, too, because earlier, he's like, Sean Connery's like, would you like me to kill him again? You know? And this time, <laughs> like, he literally, like, kills him, then he kills him again. So Cage is removing the guidance chip from this last rocket, and another guy shows up, and so he brings the explosive parts of the bomb up to the roof, and he puts it down, and, like, one of the balls goes and, like, almost rolls off the building, which I don't think would have been, like, the end of the world. Like, I think that Cage would have been safely out of the the radius of where that would have impacted him, but he still goes and dives for it, makes a real heroic effort, and puts it in his pocket, sort of for safekeeping for later, which seems like kind of a dangerous thing to do with one of these, like, really deadly 
explosive devices. Yeah, I would think, you know, that they would might melt or, you know, he could get it cut of some kind and it would definitely if be anybody, If anybody knows how these things should be treated, it's Stanley Goodspeed. It's true. Cage and the guy Does- who looks like, but he's not Viggo Mortensen, but looks a lot like him, and they kind of get into a fight and Cage, like, shoves the gas or he shoves the um, poison ball into the dude's mouth. And this is finally where we get that payoff, right? That he shoves the guy, the, the, the ball in the guy's mouth, the guy basically melts from the inside out, and Cage takes that needle and jams it into his heart in a little Mia Wallace-like situation, right? And we finally get that injection of antidote into the heart. Uh, this whole, like, final fight for good speed is, like, really intense, I felt, because he's finally, like, coming to his own, you know? Like, he's the last man here fighting the last bad guy, presumably, or pretty much. But, like, he's on his own, and he's holding his own, you know? And he's in control, and he's kind of thinks he's going to get out of this situation. And he does get out of this situation, and he, and he uses that wonderful setup from like the one of the very first scenes where we see a guy get melted with the green ball like we see that payoff here too so i just thought it was awesome and what i love about this is that after he kills the guy and after he jams himself in the heart he sort of like passes out on the ground and he's like in like a christ pose like his arms are out to his sides and like mm-hmm. he's just the ultimate hero of this movie and it's great while all this is happening washington has ordered the airstrike on the island right the jets here and the jets have the rockets they have the thermite plasma on board and cage remembers like you know green flares green smoke means all clear and he knows that he's diffused all the bombs, so he goes outside and lights the torches. He lights the flares. It's too late. Like, it's crazy, but it's too late. Yeah, I was thinking, like, the jets approaching could not see flares. Like, they're they're going at thousands of miles per hour. It's the guy with the telescope that's, like, looking at the island who sees the flares, and then he radios ahead to Washington or to, like, you know, the local commander, and that guy gets in touch with, with the people in the jets, and the jets sort of pull out at the last moment, but not before they, you know, hit part of the island with the rockets. Cage gets blown off the island into the water, right? And this is the final time that Connery swoops in and he grabs Cage out of the water. Uh, I'm up saving your ass. I'm amazed you ever got past puberty. I suppose all this will make a great bedtime story to tell your kid. You're insane, Mason. Kid will have nightmares. Spent all my money on shrinks. And then they have like this nice little goodbye there on the shores of Alcatraz where the William Forsythe calls and he's like, where's Mason? Where's Mason? And Goodsby's like, he was vaporized, sir. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, complete and total. And they're like, yeah, not a trace of him. And this part was like very perplexing. So Mason is like, you know, Goodspeed, like this was great and all, <laughs> you know, thanks. And, you know, here's a little wedding present. And he gives them a note and the note is going to be like the location of the secret microfilm stuff when did he have a chance to sort of write this little note <laughs> you know he might have he might have been carrying it around you never know i don't know man i mean i, I maybe he brought it with him from prison and just to remind himself but he doesn't seem like the kind of guy to forget uh i don't have a big problem with it i just was kind of like what and like he could have just told him. He didn't have to hand him a note or anything. Then Sean Connery sort of like magically disappears, which is yeah. wonderful. Maybe he was never there at all. Maybe he was well, always a ghost. Cage does tell him that the underwater mini subs were still there. Oh yeah, so he he's like, if you could find the gear, sure. yeah. And so then he's gone. Cage sort of clears the air, like you know, 
he's gone, like there's nothing to do about it. And then we cut to Cage and his girlfriend, or maybe wife at this point, who knows, just in Kansas, and we're outside of a church, and we just see Cage running out, and like a little bit of a flash forward, maybe the national treasure, right? Like him <laughs> hunting for this hidden, these hidden goods, and he has the microfiche in his hand, and the pastor's running out after him, he's just like, Vandal, Vandal, and they just drive away, and he's like, hey honey... You want to know who really killed JFK? And then credits. Like it's like such like a weird ending to this huge action movie. Well, it, it reminds me of the Shawshank Redemption, where like he goes to Watataneho or whatever. You know, it's yeah, like it the, definitely yeah. has like that unnecessary coda <laughs> aspect to it. It has a feel of like a backdoor into a sequel if we need it about this microfilm oh, you know God. in fact we talked listening- about uh, yeah. how cage and connery should have spun this off into a trilogy at least well there was talk that uh, now that nicholas cage has the microfilm um, agents are after him so he will seek out sean connery again for some help in evading the law he- i mean i don't know how well thought out their plans were that's the only thing i came across but yeah it just feels like you know in case we want to continue these adventures or you know just one of those like sort of after the fact just resolutions but it's not necessary i don't mind it it's kind of i kind of like going off on this really light-hearted note and it fits in with these just bizarre final turns that nick cage movies sometimes have here's some trivia about the rock uh, Sean Connery apparently did not want to travel from California to Alcatraz every day. They made the crew build him a cabin on Alcatraz, so that's just where he <laughs> stayed while the movie was being filmed. That's amazing, because Alcatraz does not seem like a very hospitable place. I thought that's why they made it like a prison in the first place, because like, it's not yeah. comfortable to stay there. It's just like he want. I guess he wanted to be on Alcatraz. Who knows? The premiere of the movie was held in Alcatraz in the prison recreation yard, so that's kind of cool. That's awesome. I would have loved to be there. Apparently, the, the original script was much more straightforward and serious than the final film. So a lot of the humor that you see, a lot of like whatever you know, the entertaining stuff was improvised during filming. That's according to Michael Bay. Tarantino wrote this movie. Like, he was uh-huh. one of the... He's an uncredited screenwriter on this film. So was Sorkin, I heard. Aaron Sorkin and Jonathan Hensley and Quentin Tarantino were all uncredited. I also f- thought, like, this movie almost felt like multiple movies kind of jammed into one. Like, it's interesting. Like, this could have just been a straight-up, like, military heist kind of ordeal. But I'm glad that they went the extra mile to, like, just make it completely ridiculous and jam-pack it with as much as they could. But, yeah, I mean, I was watching the opening of this, and it's like, you could have just had, like, Ed Harris and, you know, the guys in Quantico, like arguing the whole movie it's just like this amazing bonus that we get like cage and connery apparently this is michael bay's favorite movie that he's ever made it's my favorite michael bay movie i'll tell you that it's my favorite non non bad boys i mean it might be my favorite but like bad boys is just so good apparently arnold schwarzenegger was offered the sean connery role he's offered everything but apparently at the time the script is only 80 pages long and he said there's quote with a lot of handwriting and scribbles and didn't seem fully baked so he said no 
Another thing I read online said that he was actually considered for the Nicolas Cage role, but what? that seems less less likely. I'm not no, sure. No. That doesn't that doesn't make as much sense. No, Ed no. Harris wanted the Connery role before Connery was in the mix. Ed Harris was campaigning for that role, but he got the other. I feel like uh, Nicolas Cage's role could have been played by John Cusack, who basically plays the same exact character in Con Air. Yeah, which I'm sure you're going to be. Oh, that's the next. That's the next movie up. This is the first time of two that Nicolas Cage and Ed Harris are going to square off as hero and villain. They'll come back again in National Treasure 2, Book of Secrets. And... Um, oh, yeah. Nicolas Cage and William Forsythe were compatriot antagonists to one another again for the second time, first time in Raising Arizona. Oh, that's right. He was John Goodman's brother. Uh, we were talking about Michael Bean earlier. This is the third time that Michael Bean played a Navy SEAL. He was also a Navy SEAL in The Abyss and Navy SEALs, the movie. The last little bit that I think is interesting, and this is something we talked about earlier, we were talking about the president. The same guy, Stanley Anderson, plays the president in another Michael Bay film, Armageddon. Oh, it's connected to The Rock. They're in the same universe. It's the same. It's the same. I mean, that happens. I'm telling you right now, in my mind, <laughs> is the unofficial sequel. One other little bit. Did you know that this movie was nominated for an Oscar? No. In what category? Best Sound. And it, it did not win, <laughs> but it was nominated for Best Sound, so that's you know, another... really Nicolas good Cage. explosions in this movie. It's funny, like, speaking of the sound, I wasn't really, uh, I wasn't really like, down with the score to this movie. Like, I don't know. It's, it's Hans oh Zimmer. God. Oh my god, I have so many notes about this. Hans Zimmer. I know. He's the king of action movie soundtracks. Bum, 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 bum. Maybe it just felt too derivative of his other work. I don't know, but it's just at times, especially during the San Francisco chase, I, like I really didn't need like a cacophony of strings like backing up every right turn. But I, I, it wasn't terrible. I don't know. I was just the king of cheesy action movie soundtracks. That's the Rock. Is there anything else that we want to cover? Any other you know things that you're gonna we're gonna you're gonna regret not talking about? Oh. We pretty much covered it all, unless Mike has something to say. Um, no, got everything. For all things Cage Club, go to cageclub.me. You can read our reviews for every movie, catch up on past podcasts, subscribe on iTunes, follow us on Twitter. Larson is on Twitter as Capn Good Times, C A P N Good Times. He also has a pixel art business on Facebook now, if you want to look that up. It's tremendous stuff. I would love for you to commission some Nicolas Cage pixel art. That would be perfect, and that would be amazing for this. It might Uh, have. That was The Rock, so I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. That was Christian Larson, and we'll see you next time on Cage Club. (laughs) 